This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, debut author Julia Dahl discusses her mystery novel, Invisible City. Then Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, gives us an exclusive look at PW's forthcoming MFA supplement. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So on the fiction list, we have a a new number one. It's Unlucky 13 by the always best-selling James Patterson, sold uh, 66,763 copies, according Mm. to Nielsen Bookscan, which is pretty good for first week. Um, This one is co-authored by Maxine Petro. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's part of the Women's Murder Club series. Uh, So it's about a San Francisco detective who's uh, investigating her uh, mysteries while enjoying life as a new mother. She has an attentive husband. Uh, you know, she's got this perfect life. Uh, but uh, the FBI sends her some information about someone from her past who is mm. resurfacing. And uh, it's a pretty emotional, powerful thriller novel, as one can expect from James Patterson. Uh, and that is very firmly at the top of our hardcover fiction bestseller list. In the number two spot, we have our old friend John Sanford, who you may recall from a past interview on PW mm-hmm, Radio. Right. Uh, we talked to him about Silk and Prey. This is the follow-up, Field of Prey. Uh, it's the 24th Lucas Davenport novel. Um, I, I really dug the last one, and I'm looking forward to picking up this one. The Publishers Weekly Review says that, as always, Sanford has tricks to play to confound readers before the tension rises and leads to a violent and surprising conclusion. Wow, great. So that's it number two. We also have a new number four on the fiction bestseller list this week, hardcover fiction. Uh, This is Richard Paul Evans's new novel, Walking on Water. It's the fifth in the Walk series. This is interesting. If it were written by a woman, I'd call it women's fiction. Uh, It's a very sort of mainstream literary novel, uh, a lot of sort of introspection Mm. and deep emotion. It's about uh, this fellow, Alan Christofferson, who's been doing this cross-country walk, and he finally comes to the end of it in Key West. Uh, He had decided to embark on the walk after uh, his whole life fell apart basically his wife died he lost his business he went bankrupt and he decided to walk cross country from Seattle to Key West with uh, just a backpack and so the whole book has been uh, the whole series has been about lessons of love and forgiveness and hope and uh, now he has to head home and bring his journey full circle so these are very popular books uh, and this one has hit the bestseller list at number four And finally, I want to go down a little bit further to another past interviewee, um, 
Charlene Harris, who you mm. may recall, joined us to talk about the end of her very popular mm. Southern Vampire Mysteries, which uh, created the True Blood series, has started a new series with Midnight Crossroad. It's at number 12 on the hardcover fiction list this week. Um, this series introduces uh, the small town of Midnight, Texas, where the locals all take a day off for a picnic by the river, and they find a dead body, as mm. you do. So this is a very unusual town. Uh, it's got a witch, a psychic, a vampire, uh, a minister who tends a pet cemetery in that uh, sort of sweetly creepy way. And uh, you know, it's, it's very much a small town story. Everybody hangs out and chats and sort of ambles along through the mystery um, while they're also running errands to the big towns nearby and basically living gossipy small town life. And our review says that while not ignoring the downsides of this life with two knowing neighbors and teens desperate to get out, Harris also works in its joys and comforts. This is a solid entry in her catalog, and it will do very well with her fans. Yeah, great to know that you know what she has come up with after the uh, uh, Stackhouse Mysteries. That's right. So, uh, so great for Charlene. That's wonderful. Yeah, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see if uh, perhaps it moves up a little bit once it's had some time to settle into the bestseller list. Sure. What's going on in nonfiction? Well, nonfiction, we see uh, number one, we've got a lot of debuts this, uh, this week, and debuting at number one, topping the list, is Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, A Memoir of the Cleveland Kidnappings. Now, this is uh, written by Michelle Knight, who, along with Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus, uh, have been kidnapped and held captive for a decade by Ariel Castro mm-hmm. and uh this is the uh, this is her book that's come out um and it jumped right on the charts selling about mm-hmm. 31,000 copies last week so uh that's at number 1 and number 3 uh, just when um, you thought you might have had all the duck you can imagine. Um, <laughs> all the duck you can eat. <laughs> all the duck you can eat. We have uh, Jace Robertson, uh, second oldest son of the, uh, uh, in the Robertson family. Uh, the book is called Good Call, Reflections on Faith, Family, and Fowl. Uh, and this debuts at number three. Uh, after that, we have an inspiration book uh, by T.D. Jakes. Uh, it's called Instinct, The Power to Unleash Your Inborn Drive. Whenever he has a book, it usually does land on the uh, bestseller list. And that's uh, debuting at number five. And here, uh, you know, they say modern life can seem like being lost in a jungle with distractions and dangers emerging from every direction. And here, uh, T.D. Jakes helps you to uh, navigate through those dangers and finding your direction. Number six, uh, a book that we reviewed. It was uh, the day it came out. The Closer, My Story, Mariano Rivera. Um, Yankees closer, uh, great pitcher, writing with Wayne Coffey, who's a big sports writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this debuted at number six, and in this book, he, it's not a surprise. He talks about, uh, as in maybe the past two books I just discussed, Faith. And uh, there's not much that's surprising in the book, uh, except uh, perhaps how honest uh, Mariano is. He doesn't really dish the dirt on anyone, but he does talk about a little bit of uh, some of the events um, and some of the people, uh, some of his teammates, Derek Jeter, A-Rod, Joe Torre. And in the end, we say, in an age of bravado and bluster in professional sports, he was one of the few athletes who has earned a right to brag. 
yet Rivera's elegance and class managed to somehow outshine his accomplishments. So um, that's so was, that's always been the sense I got just from sure. seeing him on the ball field. He just seems like that kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is pretty much exactly what the book is. Mm-hmm. No surprises. But a solid story. Uh, finally, at number eight, uh, we've got Sophia Amoruso, girl boss, uh, hashtag girl boss. Uh, and uh, we say in this appealing business memoir, nasty gal founder and CEO shares her rags to riches story of having created a um, really profitable, hip, trendy company, uh, nasty gal. So that's at number eight. And that's, our, uh, that's quite a few uh, debuts on the uh, top 10 list. And there are even a few looking down, but... I think we'll just stop there. And I do want to mention one more book that's not on our bestseller list, but that uh, just came out in the past week. That would be my book. Ah, tell us. Tell us the title. (laughs) Um, Long Hidden, Speculative Stories from the Margins of History. Uh, It's out now in paperback and uh, doing pretty well, uh, as far as I can tell, by refreshing the Amazon page every five seconds to Uh, see how its rank is doing. (laughs) Um, So available in print and digitally and getting a lot of buzz on Twitter. And uh, we had a launch party for it that went extremely well. And I'm just... It's such a thrill to hold my own book in my hands. Sure. Um, oh, well, congratulations, Rose. Thank you very much. So, I know you've been working long and hard on it. Really yes, indeed. Uh, my co-editor and I, Daniel Jose Older, uh, and I have just been uh, pouring our lives into this book for the last year counting. So um, it's wonderful to just see it out, have it out, and uh, wait to see what people say about it. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Julia Dahl explores murder and mystery in Brooklyn's Hasidic communities. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Julia Dahl on the line. Her debut novel is Invisible City. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about your book, Invisible City. Uh, The book is a mystery novel. Uh, It's told from the point of view of a young tabloid journalist who's just moved to New York City and is sent in the first scene to cover the story of a woman's body found in a scrap yard in Gowanus, Brooklyn. Uh, And it uh, turns out that the woman who is has died is a member of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Borough Park, and the narrator gets involved in investigating how she died. And the narrator, is this uh, Rebecca Roberts then? She's a reporter uh, for a New York tabloid. Tell us a little bit about Rebecca, her background, and how she gets involved with, uh, in in this this case, in reporting this case, beyond uh, mere reporting. Right. So Rebecca was born in Orlando, Florida. Uh, she's 23 years old at the at the time of the book, mm. and um, she was born uh, to, to parents who were not married. Her mother was an ultra orthodox Jew who met her father uh, when her father was interning in New York City back in about 1989. They had an affair. Um, the mother got pregnant, ran back to Florida with uh, Rebecca's father, and once Rebecca was born, she abandoned the family, and they have never heard from her since. So Rebecca now, fast forward 23 years, Rebecca has grown up without a mother and knowing nothing about her mother except that she was an ultra-Orthodox Jew who returned to the fold, as far as she knows. Um, But she's always wanted to move to New York City, partly because she's interested in maybe finding her mother, um, but also partly because she wants to be 
a big city reporter, so she moves to New York City, and um, it turns out that, that the woman who's... Uh, death she's recovering um, is a member of the community her mother came from. So she becomes very interested and uses, in some ways good, in some ways bad, her um, relationship, sort uh, sort of tenuous relationship to the community to uh, investigate the murder of this woman, Rivka Mendelssohn, but at the same time, she's kind of still searching for her mother. So, obviously, uh, Orthodox communities of any kind can be very difficult for insiders to get information about and to explore. How did you research this book? Did you have access to Brooklyn's Orthodox Jewish communities? Yeah, um, I started uh, writing the book when I was a reporter at the New York Post, and I had been sent to cover the case of a young man, a groom, who had committed suicide the day after his wedding. Um, And through that, got to be interested in in this community. And basically what I did was sort of start from the outside in. I uh, contacted, I I wrote a story for a publication called The Crime Report about policing religious communities, not just the Orthodox, but also um, the Church of Latter-day Saints and the Catholic Church, Amish communities, and through that story met um, a couple of people who were part of the ultra-Orthodox community, but were working as advocates against sexual abuse. There's been uh, sort of a rash of problems, not unlike the Catholic Church, where Mm -hmm. um, kids have been victims of sexual abuse in the community, and the community doesn't want to talk about it, so perpetrators sort of just keep on victimizing people. And a lot of people have, have come out against that. So I started talking with them, and they're people who are in the community, but also sort of have a, a more uh, modern view of, you know, how we should police um, and, and, you know, capture criminals. And they were very generous with their time. I asked a million questions about the community. Um, and then I started uh, contacting other people that they would, these people would introduce me to. I kind of just... Um, it was like a domino effect. I I met um, a woman who had left the community and her uh, fiance, and they spent a long time with me, you know, just answering all my dumb questions about the community. Uh, and through them, I met more people. Um, and I had several of the women that I met actually read the book before it was published to catch mistakes. And there were many mistakes because I'm not. I'm a Reformed Jew, but not an Orthodox mm-hmm. Jew, and so there's a lot I didn't know, and so I just, it's true, yes, I spent probably five years on and off, you know, meeting people within the community and outside the community and, and trying to get get the book to be as accurate as I possibly could. So the genesis of this book, uh, Invisible City, d- did it come from this initial reporting that you were doing for the Post? Yeah, the the book came sort of from two places. One, right about the same time that I was sent on that story I mentioned at the Post, I had moved into an apartment. I live in Brooklyn and um, moved into an apartment, and, and the, land, the broker on the way to show my husband and I the apartment said, um, I need to tell you that the man who lived in the apartment before you committed suicide here. And we sort of thought, oh, wow. hey, you know. Um, but we went to the apartment. It was a great apartment. There was certainly no sign that anyone had committed suicide there. So it was great price, right by the park. So we decided to take it. And um, 
as I talked to the neighbors and started getting this man who died mail, um, because, you know, you often get your previous tenant's sure. mail, and he had no family that I knew of, I started talking to the neighbors and looking, you know, getting a sense of him through his mail and found out that he was an ultra-Orthodox Jew also from Borough Park who had been shunned because he was gay. Um, so that happened, and I just, you know, you know, writers, when we get curious, we sort of start to write, and, and I just became really, really interested in the community and started thinking about, well, how does this community handle crime and mental illness and, um, you know, abuse, and while I was sort of thinking about that, at the same time, I'm at the New York Post every day running around the city covering this homicide and that accident and that sort of thing. And so the two kind of came together uh, into creating the book. So there have been a lot of concerns over the the centuries of uh, America's time as, as an ostensibly secular nation about religious law and its conflicts with secular law. You know, in the 1960s, there were concerns about Catholics, and if we had a Catholic president, then he would be ruled by the Pope. And now you hear all sorts of stuff about creeping Sharia law. And um, I was wondering how, how you handle those conflicts within the book, the conflicts between religious law and secular law in different ways, as you said, of policing communities. Right. Well, it's a really interesting phenomenon in New York City. There are about 250,000 ultra-Orthodox Jews. Some are Hasidic, some are of other kinds of sects. But um, they are a powerful political force. I mean, they, they tend to vote in blocks, whoever the Rebbe tells them to vote for, for the most part. Um, so politicians and um, law enforcement are you know have to sort of deal with them a little bit with kid gloves because they do have some power. Um, mm -hmm. And so because their community is so different from ours, their values in many ways are very different from sort of, mo you know, modern Americans, um, you know, they the sexes are segregated completely. They go to, the, you know, boys and girls go to different schools. They ride different buses. They don't play together. Um, you know, men and women don't, uh, an ultra-Orthodox man would not shake my hand as a, as a woman. We don't, mm. They don't touch. Um, so there are all these sort of rules within the community about, you know, everything from, like I said, male-female relations, but to eating, to, you know, praying, to, um, you know, how they conduct their day-to-day -day day-to-day -day life, and their values are so different. So they have these sort of um, almost almost like their own courts, not a, not, not a, a, you know, not a civil or a criminal court, but like a rabbinic court where mm -hmm. the Rebbe um, and, and different communities have different Rebbe's who are sort of are the, the leaders of the community. When something happens, when sexual abuse happens, the many in the community do not go to the police. They go to the to the rebbe, to the rabbi, um, and the the rebbe tells them, you know, well, we shouldn't bring this to police, perhaps because, you know, we don't want um, negative attention on the community, or if the 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 sexual abuse didn't actually happen. They're very afraid of, of false accusations and that sort of thing. So everything is sort of, uh, lots of things, not everything, are kept within the fold. Um, they even have, in many parts of Brooklyn, a group called Shamrim, which is basically, I call it like a, a security guards on steroids. It's sort of like a neighborhood watch, but they're outfitted with like their own cars and their own dispatch and their own outfits. And they are, they have a relationship with the NYPD. They are in some part, some ways funded by the city. And 
a lot of people in the community call them instead of calling 911 when they're the victim of some kind of crime. And that just makes for a really, in my opinion, complicated situation when crime occurs. Sometimes the crimes are not reported. Many times the crimes are not reported to civil or secular authorities, which means that our system of justice, the system of justice you know, that I report about and that most of us understand as sort of the way that we keep the peace in our society, doesn't get involved. And you know, there are so many questions there and in some ways so many sort of great stories about, well, what does that mean for the community? What does that mean for people outside the community? Are people being treated different? Are perpetrators being let go? What are the priorities? Um, and those were some of the things that I was exploring in the book. So what led you to address this in fiction? This is your debut novel, and um, you mentioned that you were a reporter before this, so it, it might have uh, seemed more like an obvious route for you to go the nonfiction route to write about one of the cases that you covered, um, or otherwise uh, do a sort of non-fictional approach to crime in Orthodox communities. So uh, why a novel? Well, I have always wanted to be a novelist <laughs> and a journalist. So my dream was to be both. Um, I wrote a novel, a lit- very sort of quote-unquote literary novel with almost no plot but in my <laughs> 20s. Um, uh-huh. And it was terrible and didn't get published. Um, and after that, so this was maybe about 10 years ago, I sort of dove back into journalism and, and decided, okay, well, if I can't be a novelist, I'll, I'll be the best journalist I can be and really take it seriously. And I went back to, I went to journalism school and got a master's in journalism and, um, and you know, loved it. But fiction, I love to read fiction. I love murder mysteries. I love novels. And I've really, it's always been my dream to be a novelist. So I always knew that I would write another novel, or at least try. And um, you know, with the di- there's a, lo- a big difference, obviously, between writing fiction and and writing and reporting. You know, in reporting, you 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 only know what people tell you and what you see. Um, in fiction, you really get to get inside people and create them and and live inside their brains and see who they are. And I'm so curious about this community, and I'm just curious about people in general. And and it, you know, I I in a way, the fiction allowed me to let my imagination really go and allowed me to spend a lot of time with these people, these characters that I created that I was so interested in. In a way, you know, you don't get to go home with the the people you report on and hang out in their lives and, you know, watch them brushing their teeth. But in fiction, you get to do that. And that is really exciting and fun for me in a different way than, than journalism is. What was something that surprised you while writing this book as you're, you're, as you're immersing yourself in the fiction? Were, were there any things that came about that you thought, wow, this is really amazing, a, a direction that you took with the book? Yeah, to me, the thing that was, that's always been difficult for me about writing and writing a long book, like, like I said, my first book was sort of like, it didn't exactly have a plot. It was kind of like a portrait of three people. And, and to me, plotting was very was more difficult than I thought it would be. I am an avid reader of of novels, of m- lots of murder mysteries. I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of sort of crime dramas. And you would think that it would be easy for me to sort of make up a story and figure it out, you know, figure out how to get from A to Z. But even though I, I understood the plot, you know, I, I, knew, I knew the main character and I knew sort of who done it almost right away. Mm. It was really a challenge for me, a real challenge for me. I mean, over years, 
from getting from that A to Z, how, how, how the people unfolded. Actually, halfway through the book, um, I created... I was, I was writing for two years before I created one of the most main characters in the book, the character of Saul. Um, I had no idea that he would be in my book. And, and when I happened upon actually a source, um, somebody that I was interviewing for a story who was an Orthodox man who was also an, in the NYPD, it occurred to me, wait a minute, I think she, you know, she needs somebody like this. Rebecca needs an in. Mm. And I created Saul and that just brought things together. But, but, you know, just a novel, such a big project, you know, the big, the longest article I'd ever written was maybe 3,000 words, and mm-hmm. a novel is what, you know, 75,000 words. Um, so just the sheer sort of size of it and keeping all the plot lines together was a real challenge for me. And it was exciting, too. It was like a puzzle. You know, I knew I could kind of see the outline, but I didn't know exactly what piece fit where. And, and in the revision, you know, moving pieces around, um, I felt like a, I, I felt like sort of a, a sculptor, you know, where I had a block of marble and I knew there was a sculpture in there, but I just had to be kind of knocking it out. And um, until I got to, aha, it's, it's, a, it's something you can see and feel. Sure. I, are you still working as a reporter? Yes, I work um, as a reporter. I'm a reporter for CBSNews.com. Ah, okay, great. Well, uh, well, it sounds like you're off to a wonderful start with this book. So uh, we look forward to perhaps another one that you may be working on. Yes, uh, I have just finished and turned in the dra- first draft of the sequel to Invisible City. I'm really excited about it. It's um, Invisible City, in some ways, I, I use what I think of as a very traditional sort of plot model of, you know, a, a traditional murder mystery, partly because it was the first novel I felt like I really could. It, it, it helped me figure out how to write the book to use a sort of trajectory that that is well-trodden in novels. The second book, uh, the sequel, is different. It's told from alternating points of view. Um, we're going to meet Rebecca's mother, who is sort of the ghost of the first book. And she's still a reporter. She is reporting on a new murder. But I think the second book is a little more complex. It's told in a different way. And, you know, now that I know Rebecca so well, I feel much more comfortable with her and with the subject matter and the characters. And I had such a fun time writing it. It took me, I wrote, it it took about six years to write Invisible City, all told. And my um, publisher basically said when I sold Invisible City, we need another book in a year. And that was terrifying, but I sort of just banged it out, and it was so much fun to know, wow, somebody, like, actually, people are going to read this book. The first book, you know, I had no idea if anyone would ever read it. Um, so it was lots of fun, and I look forward to spending the next six or eight months buried in revisions to make it just, a, you know, even better than the first one. We look forward to seeing it. We've been talking with Julia Dahl. You can find her first book, Invisible City, in stores right now. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Director of Digital Operations Craig Teicher explores the literary ivory tower of MFA programs, so stay tuned.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Director of Digital Operations, Craig Teicher, is with us to talk about PW's forthcoming MFA supplement. Hey there, Craig. Hi. Hi. Tell us a little bit about this this supplement and um, what it means to have a supplement in PW. First of all, this is outside of our our regular coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a it's about a fifteen page uh, sort of little magazine inside the magazine that is uh, devoted to one topic. Uh, in this case, uh, MFA programs in the. United States. And this is the first time we've really written or covered at length MFA programs. What precipitated this? Well, uh, it was about time. I mean, it's a big it's a big part of the ecosystem of which we are a part. Um, you know, it's where the people who write the books get their training, and it's where a lot of the people who publish the books kind of start their careers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this coverage has been done... Um, you know, by poets and writers and sort of from the creative writing perspective, but not so much from the business perspective mm-hmm. of, like, where are people getting jobs, what are they doing with them, uh, you know, and how do MFAs actually lead to book deals. So there's been a bit of controversy about MFAs recently. Juno Diaz had some harsh words uh, about what he called MFA versus POC, people of color. So um, do we do we address that at all in the supplement, or is it more just sort of general information about the programs that are out there? It's a lot of general information. Uh, the, the controversy we do address is just the question of whether or not MFAs are sort of necessary and how they lead to writing careers. Uh, we're going to do more MFA coverage in the coming months in which I hope we can get into some more uh, kind of controversial and or, I don't know. Meaty topics. Yeah, meaty yeah. topics. Mm-hmm. So um, wh- what's the conclusion? I mean, are, are MFAs useful? Is there an answer beyond sometimes for some people? Um, I mean, from, from our perspective, you know, we we looked at, you know, the, the writers who wrote the features in the supplement, you know, looked at uh, you know, how many editors there are who have jobs, uh, you know, who really got their start as MFA students, um, and of course, how many book deals started in MFA programs. Um, so, uh, you know, from the publishing perspective, it is, uh, I mean, they are very useful, though, of course, every editor we talked to also said, you know, it's not the only way that we find books. Sure. And so what what exactly is in the supplement? What are these individual features? There's a long piece that kind of just is a write-through about all the different kinds of programs there are. Uh, And inside of that, there are these little essays from uh, writers who teach about why they got an MFA and why they teach or how they teach in their MFA. Uh, And then there are three shorter features. One of them is... uh, one of our reporters uh, talked with agents and editors about, um, you know, what MFA programs they they look at, uh, you know, when trying to find new authors. And then there's a feature about editors, um, and uh, there's one feature about authors and one about editors and and how their MFAs kind of led them to those careers. Um, 
And so I take it we cover some of the, the big names of, uh, of, of those who've been published through various programs. What have we found out? What is the history of, of, uh, of, of, of writing programs? And are they as popular as they ever were? Um, well, you know, they've been around uh, since the late 30s. I think Iowa was Iowa's the first. Right. Um, they, I mean, th- there was a boom in the 60s, and then there was another more recent boom kind of after 9-11 when everyone dove back into grad school, uh, just because it's a really popular course of study um, for undergraduates and, of course, graduate students. Um, so right now what's happening is the programs are trying to find ways of distinguishing themselves. I mean, it used to be that if you, you know, that the perception was if you wanted a book deal, you had to go to a program in New York, which meant you wouldn't get funded and which meant that you would owe a lot of money. Um, what's happened is that, uh, you know, a, a couple of generations of writers who have MFAs have now spread out and are teaching in all these universities all over the country. So you can study with really first-rate people, really exciting people um, in places, uh, you know, there's a ton of programs in Arizona, there's a ton of programs in, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple in Illinois and Ohio um, that are really good. And um, so now those programs are starting to become prominent in, in ways or have become prominent in ways that they hadn't been. And is that based on maybe uh, book deals or is it based on as you had mentioned before people working in publishing I know there's quite a few uh, editors on staff here at uh, PW who have gotten their MFAs at various programs mm-hmm. I mean it's it's a it's a bunch of things um, I mean yeah book deals are coming out of you know programs in cities that you know didn't used to have programs Um Again, you know, pretty famous writers are teaching in places that there didn't used to be famous writers. Um, and, you know, New York is, is no longer the only place to go to, uh, you know, to launch a publishing career because, you know, I mean, indie presses are based all over. Um, yeah. Now, there's also, I remember uh, just a few months ago, there was, that, there was the uh, that other debate. I know Rose had mentioned one debate, but there was the debate MFA versus NYC. Uh, is that something that anyone in our features is, or in the uh, supplement has has addressed? Yeah, meaning, I mean, we, meaning what's what's more important, uh, going you know, getting an MFA or living in New York City? Yeah, I mean, you know, that came out of a book uh, published by the magazine N Plus One, and and we do mention it briefly. Um, you know, again, I I think that's that's become the big question. It's like, can you just come to New York and kind of network until you're an author, or do you need to get, you know, do you need an MFA? Um, I mean, again, you know, we were we were looking at, at the one way, mm-hmm. you know, rather than the other. So that's what we focused on. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the conclusion I keep coming back to is, well, how much does it matter if your book is good? Um, and, and that's, I guess that's really the question, is how much does the networking matter, the connections you make at an MFA, the connections that you make, you know, hobnobbing with publishers and writers in, in New York City. To what extent do the connections matter versus just having a really high-quality manuscript? Well, I, you know, what I always tell my students, because I teach in two MFA programs, um, and I teach undergrads as well, is that really the best reason to do an MFA is because you want to spend two years geeking out right. on on the kind of writing that you love. Mm. Um, that's the only real promise a program can make you, that you'll have time to immerse yourself in the world of writing. Beyond that, you know, there are a lot of factors, and networking is, of course, one of them. It can certainly help. Um, but uh, writing really well is the main one. 
Um, and sometimes the MFA can be the kind of place where a writer can mature and come out of it with a real voice, but sometimes writers go in with that voice and the MFA is, you know, for something else, just for, for fun or for, yeah, connecting to, you know, people who become lifelong friends and people who become lifelong colleagues. Well, tell us a tell us a few of the uh, contributors, few of the uh, uh, the the writing instructors who who wrote essays for us. Uh, so we have a piece from uh, the novelist Renee Stanky, who runs the MFA program at Fairleigh Dickinson, um, which is a low res program. And um, I'm actually the poetry editor for the literary magazine there, which is called the Literary Review. Mm-hmm. Though I have nothing otherwise to do with the program. Um, and, um, you know, she talks, she actually had done an MFA as a poet and ended up being a novelist, so she talks a bit about that. Uh, we have a great piece from Rigoberto Gonzalez, who teaches at um, Rutgers Newark. Um, and he talks about how when he did his MFA, uh, his family, you know, he, he lied to them and told them he was getting a teaching degree instead of a writing degree. <laughs> um, because they would not have been very receptive um though you know it's turned out for him that sort of teaching and mentoring have been very prime right primary parts of of his life as a writer so who else you uh yeah so we have uh matthew shinoda who is the director of the program at columbia college chicago and his piece is a little bit more academic um sounding uh and he talks a little bit about uh an Ellison quote, and uh, it, it's, it's sort of fancy talk, mm. um, but interesting. And again, it's sort of about his sort of ethics as a teacher and what he thinks can and can't be taught. And uh, have you found that I mean, you, you you said you discuss MFA programs all of all kinds, low residency, no residency. Maybe there's no no residency. Uh, there, tell there us what are. you know about the low residency programs. There seems to be a lot more of them popping up. Well, and, and again, it's a more affordable way and also a way that you can do an MFA without having to give up your job and your, you know, and move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the best of those or the most famous of those is probably the Warren Wilson program. Um, and then there's Rutgers Newark and there's, uh, I mean, NYU has one now. Um, there's a whole bunch. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, Lots of really well-known people have come out of the Warren Wilson mm-hmm. program, um, and some of the newer ones are just getting underway. There actually is at least one no-residency program that we cover. There's an there's an online-only program. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. I think there's there's two right. uh, that that we talk about. Great. Well, it sounds like there are lots of options out there. There are. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for that, Craig. For a little peek into. Uh, your feature coming out yeah the supplement thank you for having me and that'll be out on monday mm-hmm. thanks a lot craig yeah and that's it for today's show i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio you can find this and every episode of publishers weekly radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pw radio and on itunes available for you to listen absolutely free check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story thanks for listening You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 